I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, extremely talented and able articulate dialectician, Lizzie Dastin, art historian extraordinaire, and myself, artist, Bua. (laughs) So today we have an incredible guest, uh, a dynamic artist. I'm so happy. I'm so happy he's on our show, Ron English. What's up, Ron? Hey, guys. Hey, so hey, honored up? to have you on the show. Really, I've just been a huge fan of yours for a long time. I know that you and Justin are friends. Wait, do you teach him an art history class? I do. And actually, even better than that, my students, at the end of the semester, they each have an opportunity to present on an artist that they admire. And literally every semester for the past 12 years that I've taught art history, somebody has presented on your work. Wow, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. I've seen I've seen a lot of your work through myself and through their eyes and it's always interesting to see how you captivate this young generation of scholars and critical thinkers. Yeah, you know I actually flunked art history twice. <laughs> <laughs> Ron, what was it? What's your Yay. what period of art history do you love the most? Oh, the current one, of course. Yeah, but when you were young, was there any, like for me, I was very influenced by kind of like German expressionism and all of the early mm. Dutch painters like Rembrandt and, and Bruegel the Elder, Bruegel the Younger. A lot of those guys really just kind of hit me when I was young also because my, my mom hung all that dark shit around the house. But what, <laughs> do you remember anything personally for you? Well, I mean, I like the abstract expressionists because it seems like there was more drinking than painting, and that kind of was appealing <laughs> to me. <laughs> and you, did but, you? Uh, no, but I also like the idea of, you know, non-representational art, which would probably seem odd, you know, coming from me. But it's like, if you think about it, like your paintings are, you know, underneath them all, they're abstract paintings. I mean, they're not going to work as a painting if they don't work as a composition and, you know, and it, on that level. And then it's almost like you're superimposing the image on top of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for so like sure. Stripping away the image and trying to keep something that's like a standalone aesthetic experience was kind of fascinating for me. And also, I, I was super into the idea of movements, like where everybody sits down at a cafe and they, you know, they're all painting for each other. Uh-huh. They're all making art for each other. They're all on the same page. Well, that that is a you know, that's an amazing. And Ron, can I? I'm just going to make a personal note right here. That's an amazing thing in art because I notice that people always stick together. Like when you look at a Judd Apatow movie, you always see that he uses the same people over and over again. He uses, you know, Seth Rogen, Jonah Hill, James Franco, the whole crew. And I notice that a lot of people bring up their people. But one thing that artists are, and this is just a fact that I've noticed over the years, is people have a, a scarcity mindset. People don't want to help out other people. Like there's a like there's a life raft, and don't people don't want to bring anybody up. But with Ron, right. Ron is always super generous. He works with everybody. He doesn't, you know, he really doesn't look down, doesn't discriminate, and he really brings up your fellow person. I feel like that. That's like what I call APC flow. You're in the flow of uh-huh. abundance, and you're not afraid. Like, oh, if I give this guy an opportunity, he's going to pass me. He's going to take my work away. So I really have to right. applaud you for that because the art scene is doggy dog. It's brutal. And to have somebody right. at your level who's so helpful to everybody, that's very commendable. So 
Props to you for that. Like if somebody's going to buy your paintings, they're probably only going to buy two paintings anyway, right? They're not going to buy 30 paintings. That's a good point. So that means if they're interested, if you get to steer them towards the people you like and help those people, then, you know, you're kind of being selfish in a way, right? Absolutely. You're kind of supporting the art you like. You're making your voting, you know, by pointing you in that direction. Right, exactly. But I think that there is that fallacy of scarcity, that mindset, like Justin mentioned, where artists who are still climbing to achieve whatever level of success they envision for themselves in their career, that they have to do that alone. And that if they work with somebody else and if they propel somebody else, then that's going to be to the detriment of their own journey. And I just see that all the time working with contemporary rising artists. And it is so sad that you can't explain to them to see the bigger picture of the community. And that is something that I love about your work is that there is this idea of a collective that I see in your imagery and in your practice. Right. But I mean, that's not, you know, I mean, coming up, you know, I came up right after uh, Cindy Sherman and Robert Longo and and all those crews, the ones that, that won the game in the end were the ones that stuck together. And the ones that try to play it alone are the ones we don't really hear about anymore. You know what I mean? So it's, 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 in a way, it's kind of a selfish thing to be helpful to other people because you build like a, a, a team. And, 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 and back to the, you know, back to the, um, you know, using the same people to create like a collaborative project. Like we, we've been working on this, um, this kind of rock opera, ongoing rock opera thing that every, every record is a different episode, but we always use the exact same people. But it's because everybody, you know, if somebody comes in and nails it, then you're not taking a chance anymore. You know that they can come in and do it over and over and over again. You know what I mean? So a lot of times when you see these people use the same people because you know they're going to deliver. You but, know, they're not going to throw it. You but know? Ron, you have a weird, like you have a weird role in art because you're you're kind of part. You know, you're you're an artist. You're in the gallery world. You're you're. I guess you would you define yourself as a pop artist, propaganda. Propaganda. Is that I, how you I define yourself? Um, well, I think the pop artists were very distinct and they had a kind of a mindset that I don't really have. Um, my, my stuff is kind of more critical than their stuff was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then the generation that came after me, um, I think their thing is, uh, their fan, it's fan art. Mm-hmm. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like if you take somebody like cause that's fan art, he's not critical of the things he's painting. He's not making a social critique about him. He just, he's saying, I like this. And there's this whole wave of artists that, that when they're painting, you know, if I'm painting Charlie Brown, I'm talking about my relationship to him, how he was, he felt like a real person to me. And also kind of a cynicism about how he's attached to a big corporation or he behaves in a certain way that's like part of corporate America, not really human. So, I mean, there's, there's kind of a undercurrent of a bunch of weird stuff that goes on in my art that, that these kids have completely stripped out and just, it's just, I like SpongeBob. So I'm going to paint SpongeBob. It's very—it's kind of an interesting time. It is, and I've seen in art history trends in constructing the courses that I teach that typically a movement will either be an extension of what came before or a rejection of it. And I think that the most sophisticated art maybe visually appears to be extending the methodologies or the purpose of what came before them, but really they are subverting it. And that's probably, right. that that's what I hear that you're talking about with the contemporary generation of somebody like Cause, who doesn't seem to be critiquing anything, but merely celebrating. Right. And I don't think that that could have happened. I think it's kind of like the art world had a certain amount of control 
and, and intellectual rigor that went behind what they were doing for years and years and years. And it was a very closed loop. And um, I think just because so many, you know, big collectors wanted the more facile type of stuff that it, it had to emerge and it had to be, you know, it had to be accepted at some point or you're just going to lose, you know, but I don't think a lot of people are super happy about, you know, what is basically fan art, you know, becoming the, the, the big thing. Now, in addition to offering a critique of consumerism, of corporate America, as you do, what I find very engaging and successful about your work is your subversive use of humor. And that's what I'm really hoping to talk to you about today is just the role of humor in art, how you integrate it, who we think has done it in the past successfully. Well, I I mean, humor is kind of like part of intelligence, right? I mean, that's how you um, have a dialogue with people that you don't agree with is by (laughs) using humor, you know, and it creates a safe space for us to actually have a dialogue. Who's, who's your favorite comic? My favorite comic? Yeah. Oh, Steve Reich. Okay. Steven Reich. Yeah. I I love his stuff. Yeah. I I feel like Lizzie, you don't know who he is. He's like a very super self. Probably the one that influenced me the most would have uh, been Andy Kaufman. Oh, I could see that. I could totally see that. I just like the idea of, you know, that you're not really sure where it ends or where, when he's for real and when he's not for real. And do you know what I mean? Yeah. The line is very, the line is very thin. And if you, if you look at Jim Carrey's, uh, the documentary that was made on Jim Carrey playing the role of Andy Kaufman, I, Mm -hmm. did you see that Ron? Yes. Yes. Yeah. You could see that he, he himself becomes so method in his becoming Andy Kaufman that he really became him in a lot of ways. I don't think he was bullshitting. I think he really be- thought he was Andy Kaufman and lost his fucking mind. And the, and the lines of what was real and what wasn't real were so blurred socially that it became well, I, completely bizarre. I think bizarre. he wanted not just to portray the guy, but he wanted to see what it felt like to be in that space. Exactly. Because it's not a very comfortable space. Exactly. Mostly, you, you, you know, if you want people to like you, do it, do, you know, be, be a very predictable person and they will like you. Um, be very unpredictable and you really uh, upset the apple cart and a lot, make a lot of people nervous. Mm. When you're dealing with things that cost money and, you know, production is time, you know, if you drop a coffee cup, there's $5,000 while everybody regroups and does the shot again, you know. So like having somebody throw a monkey wrench into that is kind of, you know, that's such a rarefied space that nobody would ever want to trip it up like that. When we started talking about comedy and Justin, you went, or humor and art, and then you asked about a favorite comedian. I think that is just really illustrative of the fact that we don't easily associate humor with visual art, that we kind of distinguish the comedy side from the art. And that is something that I think is kind of a missed opportunity because a lot of fine art is fiercely funny and funny with political agendas, sure, but also funny with more mainstream agendas. And this, to me, gets back to that whole dialogue of high art versus low art, which is really something that, Ron, in your work, you collapse, and I admire that a lot. And I think it could be interesting for our listeners just to discuss some historic examples of funny art. Well, Ron, I'm going to I'm going to answer that question and may have some commentary about your work because I grew up in the 70s, so I grew up with wacky right. packs. 
And wacky packs were those fucked up stickers that you got that were so bizarre, and they would take like consumer right. products and make fun of it. And Ron right. has taken that and made it an art. Not like wacky packs weren't an art. I think wacky packs were a great art. But Ron, talk to me about how much wacky packs plays a role <laughs> in your work. Um, well, you know, when I was a little kid, you know, the um, we would get those stickers and put them on our lunch boxes. So that was probably one of my earliest exposures to art. Yeah. That's so but interesting. Also, I, I feel like that my stuff is a little, you know, it's using that technique. But if you look back at all the wacky packs, they weren't that dead on. You know, they were just, I think they were just tossing them off really quick, you know. So hopefully yeah. mine make it deeper, uh, say something a little deeper than they did. But, uh, but yeah, I'm definitely, you know, using that, that same technique. That's interesting. Has anyone, has anyone ever asked you that? And, and then, sorry? Has anyone ever made that analogy with wacky packs before? Oh, Carla McCormick. <laughs> but Kyle McCormick did? Okay. Of course, he, he's, he's the great connector. He sees, like, he sees what we're all doing, you know, behind the veil. Mm, I, think I, I think I must be great, too, because I made that connection as well, Ron, if I may, if I yeah. may just throw that in there. <laughs> well, what, what do you think about what you're doing? Because then in a way, you're maybe one of the most populist artists I know. Like, when I go to the mall, there's your art, you know? Yeah. And well, then there's kind of rip-off versions of some other people, you know? But but you're there, you know? Yeah, well, you know... Like, it does, what did you think about uh, Keen? Remember Keen? Keen? Yeah, Um Walter Keene, which later they figured out it was his, uh, you know, it was uh, Margaret Keene was actually making the paintings. Oh, the yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but the, the, big, the big guys? Yeah, the big guys are okay. I, I saw that movie. Um, but I mean, that, that, I was like in, in the Midwest in a tiny little town, and if you bought more than $12 worth of groceries, you got a free Keene painting. Oh, yeah. Of course, it was just like a fake painting stepped on, stamped on cardboard. You know, like the brush strokes were stamped on, but it's like, you know, to me, that was um, that. There's your real pop artist right, right there. You know, how can you have pop art? You know, in, in, a, in a very exclusive gallery in New York City for an audience of seventy people. It's like, and say you're a pop artist. You're, you're you're appropriating pop culture, but but you're not really a popular artist. Keen was a popular artist. People, you know, people loved him. Yeah. The art world hated him because you know it was too sentimental. But you know. That's like saying, you know, the music world hates Paul McCartney because people sing his songs. Yeah. And love them. Yeah. Well, they cry when they sing them. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. I, I, look, man, I, I, have, I have too much to say about my own work uh, in terms of that, but it doesn't really bother me. Like when I, you know, when I, when I hear like, oh, man, you know, your work's in Target, most people say that's awesome. And then some people, you know, mm-hmm. of course, in the snooty, insular, ivory tower art world would be like, oh, what a sellout. But the reality is right. if you had the opportunity to do it, you would probably do it too. You know, the, the same artist who's saying like, that's the same artist who yeah. was like, man, I would never go on street art throwdown. That's a sellout move. And then next right. thing you know, they're like, can, can you get me on street art throwdown? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like direct messaging me. I'm like, come on, man. Like. Don't yeah. pretend like you're trying well, my, to keep my, it real. My my favorite moment was uh, when I had my first really big painting show in New York in like the late '80s, you know. And I also got like the absolute English and stuff. And so they brought over like eight cases of vodka, and I got over three thousand people to show up at the opening. Which later I figured out isn't a good thing. You know, you want a small group of people that actually buy the paintings, not just a bunch of people that want free vodka. But one right. guy was just getting <laughs> drunker and drunker, and he kept coming up to me and going, "You're a sellout! You're a sellout!" 
And he just kept doing it. It's like, here he comes again. He's got to tell me I'm a sellout. And finally, at the very end of the night, when we're wrapping things up, he came over me. And, and one more time, here we go again. He goes, how can I be a sellout? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, we were, um, we were dumped into an art world. And actually, I studied art photography, which um, when I was studying it, I was like from a very poor family in the Midwest, you know, trailer park trash or whatever. Mm -hmm. I was really looking for a way to make a living, you know, more than I cared about making some grand artistic statement. But I was doing the fabricated to be photographed thing. And I figured out that there wasn't a single person alive making a living through the gallery system with these, this kind of uh, uh, photographic strategy. There were ones like Jerry Yulesman and Dwayne Michaels. But they either taught or they um, did commercial art, and they, they weren't even actually make their own career off of the thing, even though they're the most prominent figures in that movement. You know, so that that was uh, a weird time, right? Why would why would I mean, if you think about it, like I went to graduate school. You know, I went to graduate school and relocated to New York, and not a not a um, n- nobody made it out of my school. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Could you imagine year after year after year after year? upping all these kids into this mythical art world and then they get to go find out it doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, and then it would be kind of like, what if you were, uh, I don't know, what if you went to dental school and they said, well, the odds of you actually seeing a patient are a hundred, hundred thousand to one. Right. I mean, you'd sue the dental school, right? Yep. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, so it's a weird time. And I, and it was the art world actually, you know, looking back on it was a very restrictive place. If, I mean, if you think about Rauschenberg's and John's, you know, before they really hit it, they were doing windows on Fifth Avenue. Yeah. Now, if you did a window on Fifth Avenue, Boo, you'd be going, you'd be putting it on your Instagram and telling everybody, and people would be patting you on the back, thinking, "Man, that is so freaking cool!" Fifth Avenue, New York City. Oh my God. Yeah. But they had to hide that, and they had to do it under a fake name, because the art world is a very, very restrictive space. And I still know people that kind of operate completely inside the art world. And I know that they have like a certain amount of frustration because maybe their gallery decides they're not going to sell their art for four years, but they don't want them to do anything else. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Or they, they try to dictate where, where they go, how they behave in public. So I don't know. I mean, I just don't think I would be a good fit for that world. You know what I mean? I'm too crazy. And the, and the other crazy thing is, Ron, the, the real crazy thing is not only – well, you do, though. You, you, you are successful in – the gallery space and you have that market. But at the same time, what's really crazy about you is you also have the respect from the street art community. You're able to actually get up to go do giant paintings on the wall. You've made your, your work available for the public to see. So you kind of, you know, here you are, you know, this dude from the Midwest who's popular in this area, successful in that area. But at the same time you have street cred. Which is right. pretty dope. But I, I think those walls are broken down. I think they're gone. And, you know, I, I think Keith Haring, you know, he, yep. he got in the art world really quickly, so he probably didn't realize what, what a rare feat it was to get into that world. And so he still had, you know, his childish ambitions of having a pop shop and doing different things like that and doing what he wanted to do. And uh, so he did them, but he was already in. And so I think that the art world changed to suit him instead of the other way around. So yeah. a lot of, we could thank him for being able to do a lot more stuff. You know what I mean? I agree, but I love that you referenced Johns and Rauschenberg because I think this shift pivoted a little bit earlier even than Keith Haring. And I think because of the work that earth artists did or even pop artists, because of that 
foundation, somebody like Keith Haring was able to operate in both worlds, the world of the street, the renegade heterodox, and also the traditional world of art school and galleries and that system. And to me, that really began in the late 50s, early 60s, when the street started to become activated by political rallies and when artists started to see beyond the myopic world of traditional materials and traditional locations. And so I think that people like Smithson or Heiser, when they started to use materials like dirt and rocks and people like Demaria and all of those earth artists, that that was one of these disintegrations between high and low. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in my school, I mean, what we were studying, because what was going on at the time in the late 70s when I went to art school was... Uh, you know, earthwork. So, I mean, we would take a field trip to go see Cristo or, do you know what I mean? So, so that still influences my work. Like a couple of years ago, I rented five planes and flew over Manhattan. And what the planes did is they wrote cloud over and over again across the skyline. And then like 15 minutes later, those words turned into little clouds. So (laughs) very much, but very much, you know, that came from, you know, looking at Cristo and that kind of stuff that was going on in the seventies. How much did you sell that for? Just kidding. <laughs> you have to make you have to make prints of it and sell those. Right? Just like <laughs> How much did that cost you, Ron? How much did it cost? I think about five grand or something like that. Not that not as much as you think. Yeah. Oh man, that's, that's maybe a little more, maybe nothing. seven grand. I don't okay. Know. Christo is a great reference point. Also, I think that his work with his wife is a lot more humorous than art historians and critics tend to think. And a lot of the people that you're referencing, like Keith Haring, also there's some whimsy and humor in his work. And it's just constantly fascinating to me that that element, that stream, that form of communication is constantly diminished. And I just wonder, yeah, why do you, do you guys... How do you say your name? It's Kruja von Bruggen, or am I saying uh, that right? Jean-Claude, or... I can't, yeah, Von. No, uh, no, no, his wife, yeah. Right, right. And they work together, although it's annoying that the work is typically authored by Christo. And I unfortunately just kind of accommodated that narrative because I can't remember his wife's name. And that, (laughs) I mean, that's terrible as a feminist historian that it wouldn't just immediately come to mind. But yes, often people do work in collectives, yet they are the only ones given that credit. He's the Madonna thing. He's Christo. She's Kruja von Bruggen, right? You see what I mean? It's almost like you're going to be so much better off if you call yourself Banksy or Oleg or Madonna or Cher. (laughs) If you try to keep your whole name intact, sometimes it can really slow you down. Ron, what are you what are you working on now? Besides every um, besides everything, because I know you got a lot. You got a whole toy line going on. You got your prints. You got your fine art. You got the work that goes up on the streets. You're doing all kinds of uh, pop up shows. What's really what's well, happening this, now? This this fall, I have a New York painting show and um, a painting show in Montreal, and um, we we have a new rock opera that's um, it's about my world, Delusionville. And the rabbits are the main thing. But um, in this episode, it's 30 new songs that tell the story of the, the great orange elephant that falls through the rabbit hole and disrupts our whole world. <laughs> so we've been working on that all summer. That's awesome. So you're just... And, a- yeah, it's awesome. We, well, we, we also, you know, we live in a really interesting place. We live about an hour and a half above New York in uh, Beacon, New York, or New York City in Beacon, New York. And so I kind of figured out at one point that all these famous musicians live up here. 
so you know in recording the record our you know we get to use steely dan's band and bob dylan's band and Damn. you know the some of bruce springsteen's band so these are all our studio guys and then i got different you know vocalists to play all the different parts so that's why they keep returning and playing the same parts so like the the big bow leaf sheep is a opera singer and the little comrades are sang by these little junior high school girls and but i mean it's just like you know it took me a while up here and i realized it's like there's like the mother load of greatness musically in this area i mean i guess it makes sense because you don't really want to have a new york apartment when you're gone eight months of the year but anyway it's like pretty cool and yeah. also it's a bit different you know like when you're a painter you're by yourself yep and it's just all you but it's a whole different dynamic working with other people and collaborating and you know, really being able to exploit their their talents and and also you know putting yourself in a position where you know if you make something that's difficult you know they're not going to have a hard time at all with it you know what i mean yeah and that kind of circles back to this concept of working with your team like you and justin were both saying that artists and filmmakers tend to do and you are able in that scenario to really capitalize on people's individual skill sets and it's really great that you that you're going through that with all these musicians. And I'm sure you do that too when you make toys. That that seems like it must be a collaborative process too. Yeah, but you, we work with people in China to do that. So so the main, main I do with a few different companies and I have my own company, but most of the stuff comes goes through uh, uh, Pop Life. So he has like two factories there. And uh, so he, we do a lot, a lot of stuff together. And he also is... Um, a promoter. So he used to do like the new kids on the block and stuff back in the day. <laughs> so he approaches it differently. Like last year we did 10 city tour where basically, I don't know, it's kind of like an art show, rock and roll show and you sell merch, you know? Yeah. And, and cause I was kind of, cause I'm kind of playing with, you know, the music thing. We're trying to think of, well, how would you make money off of this? You know, yep. like, cause I know people that have, you know, they've been on David Letterman, they've been on Johnny Carson, they've been the you know top 10, whatever. I can't make 10 cents off music, you know? So like what, there's gotta be a trick to making monetizing music again. And I, and I, I believe it's with merch. So like, basically we didn't have a band. We just had these giant statues of all my characters playing guitars and piano and drums. But, at, you know, but then there was a giant merch table with, you know, a hundred and some odd items. And these kids in China will roll in with their wagons and just pack up as much stuff as they can get. You know, so that's that, that, that's how you have a tour. You know what I mean? <laughs> and now we're trying to incorporate the music element into all that. But if you think about, like, I I did stuff with like Dead Mouse, and you know, and boy, like you know, we saw the concert, and then I'm, we're trying to leave, and there's it's like a 20 minute wait to leave. Like, how <laughs> come it takes so long to leave? And and finally, somebody says, "No, they're all the merch thing." You know, they all as soon as the concert's over, they all line up and buy stuff. They don't want to buy it earlier because you have to hold it through the whole show. But at the end, you know. They want their stuff, <laughs> their T-shirts and their toy. I, did, I knew it because we did a toy together. So, Damn. That's what, anyway, that's what people so, want. So, they so want. Half of being an artist is trying to solve the problem of how do you make money. <laughs> right. Yep, half that's true. How do you do what you want to do, right? Yep. 100%. Was, does that explain your initial impetus to work with toys? Um, I... I worked with toys because I wanted to. They, when they started doing the limited edition toys, like, you know, I had so many characters that I just wanted to be involved in that. And it was actually quite difficult to break into that world. But, you know, now 10 years later, I'm the biggest selling independent toy guy on planet Earth. So Damn. Yeah, you, you never know. But I, it's nothing, I didn't expect much of it. I thought it would be a real fun thing. But it opened up like all kinds of doors. 
Well, Ron, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to get off the phone and pick your brain about that world because I know nothing yeah. about it. <laughs> about the making um, money world? No, well, no, no. It's like sometimes you just do something for fun, and then suddenly you know now you know all these hip hop artists, and you know all these um, uh, sports stars, and and then you start working with them, and you know they finance your new company or whatever. But it's, that's how I got to them. You know <laughs> then you're I mean? a billionaire, and you're living gonna, on an island. They weren't going to find me in a gallery. They weren't. You know. Yep. So what was the collab that you two did together? Ron took my, my iconic DJ painting and did his Ron, he, he Ron Englishified it. Right, Ron? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's kind of been a weird phenomenon. But another thing that I didn't expect, but I did Charlie Brown grinning. You could see his skull and you could see like the, the, um, his almost all the way up to the eyeballs of his skull. Cause you know, like the way cartoons smile, it would, you would see your whole skull mm-hmm. and it was just like a playful painting. And then I did like the um, smiley face like that. And then next thing you know, it's like it, it, I've done it with everybody. I've done it with you. I've done it with uh, every Warner Brothers character, The mm-hmm. Simpsons, uh, South Park, um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But at some point it became a thing to have the grin treatment on your character. Yeah. And, like I didn't see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Oh, I was just wondering because you mentioned that you did not, you didn't do as well in our art history in that class as maybe you would have liked. And I was just wondering if you've ever thought about maybe going back to iconic art history paintings or sculptures and Ron Englishifying mm-hmm. them. Um, well, actually, how I finally bailed myself out of uh, art history was um, I went home and I painted my roommate to look like Matisse, woman with a green stripe. Oh, and awesome. took a photo of her for my photo class. And so what I did is I started taking all these artists' works and doing uh, my own versions of them. So I think for me, once I understood the artist, then I was okay. And also, it didn't help that they, they may have the class at 8 in the morning. They turned off all the lights and showed slides. <laughs> and I'd been partying until 4 in the morning. So I know. I call that the headbanging, when the lights are really low and you want to pay attention and you're trying to stay awake, but you just can't. And so your head is constantly like in a uh, state yeah. of rock ecstasy. And I was also, you know, I worked at really terrible jobs. Like I would, I was in the projects pulling out the ceilings and rats would be in your hair afterwards because it all fall out of the ceilings. And, and, and I really wanted a profession, you know? So like when I raised my hand and go, well, this artist, um, you know, Cezanne, um, how did he make a living, you know? And they're like, oh, he had a generous father, you know? And then one after the other, it's like, well, how did this one make a living? Generous father. And it's like, I don't have a generous father. I have a very generous father that has nothing. So, <laughs> I don't know. So, so part of it was like to kind of resent it that, you know, here I'm, you know, we're, we're waving the flag of all these people that never had to work a day in their lives and just got to be artists. You know what I mean? So uh, I probably had a lot of resentment towards a lot of that stuff too. And now? Again, once I, once I once I crossed over, actually, my minors in art history, so. Boom. So I, I, it's it's kind of like everything. First you hate it, and then you become obsessed with it and love it, you know? <laughs> well, Ron, you're... I, mean, I, 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 could not, I could not stand pop art. I could not stand it. I thought it's the most facile, stupid thing ever. It's you know, like Andy Warhol has like bad silk screens of, of like celebrities. It's like the dumbest thing you could possibly ever think to do. And, and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting? Like, I'm going to take two years and just be a pop artist. I'm going to be the thing I, I hate worst. You know, and then after two years, it changed my life. <laughs> so, so in studying you, you pop the art the way that yeah. you did, did you learn more about the the subversion of it? 
Right, and you also realize there's a lot of other aspects besides the the weird painting. There's the whole lifestyle that's created around it, and the, and the way you engage with with uh, the community and the the culture at large, and it, it creates a whole different world around you. You know. Well, Ron, but, you, you know, it's the same thing. It's like you know when you have debate clash, you know, you, you pick the side that you don't agree with. You know, and you walk away kind of understanding them at least better. You know. Well, Ron, you are you have arrived. You are there. You're in the pocket of it, and you are the fucking man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Art attack. You're 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 like a living legend, bro. You're like one of the greatest artists okay. alive. So I am I am honored to talk with you, and hopefully we could do a collab uh, very soon. I got to do one of your paintings now. Well, I I can't wait to see your new stuff, man. So exciting. Hey, Thank man. Thank you guys so much. You too. I'm ready to see your new stuff. Yes, thank you. You're such an inspiration. It was really a pleasure getting to hear more about your work. Oh, thank you. All right, Ronsky. Take it easy, man. All right. Have a great day. All right, peace. Thank you. 